The book Night by L.A. Wiesel is one of those books that uh, many of us read in um, perhaps high school uh, literature class. It's one of the most uh, devastating, heartbreaking, and yet beautiful books written in the 20th century. It's the story of his time in uh, during the Holocaust and in a German concentration camp as a child, no less. Now, reflecting on uh, the many events and the many uh, difficulties that he encountered, um, he observed this one beautiful and yet tragic moment that he uh, reflects on in his book. And I want to read you just a selection of that to set up what we're talking about this morning. And he talks about the danger of lowering one's guard when you're in a concentration camp. Even for a moment when death could strike at any time. Those are my thoughts when I heard the sound of a violin. A violin in a dark train where the dead were piled on top of the living. Who was this madman who played the violin here? At the edge of his own grave? Or was it a hallucination? It had to be Juliet. He was playing a fragment of a Beethoven concerto. Never before had I heard such a beautiful sound in such silence. How had he managed, how, he, how had he succeeded in disengaging himself to slip out from under my body without feeling it? The darkness enveloped us. All I could hear was the violin, and it was as if Juliet's soul had become his bow. He was playing his life, his whole being, was gliding over the strings, his unfulfilled hopes, his charred past, his extinguished future. He played that which he would never play again. I shall never forget Juliet. How could I forget this concert given before an audience of the dead and the dying? Even today, when I hear that particular piece by Beethoven, my eyes close and out of the darkness emerges the pale and melancholy face of my Polish comrade, bidding farewell to an audience of dying men. Such darkness, and yet such light, such horror, and yet such beauty, such silence, and yet singing. The song that's performed is not Pollyannish, but it's true, it's strong, it's powerful, it's majestic. Something strong enough to enter into the darkness and if not immediately eliminate it, at least to challenge its reign. The message of the gospel carried by the church is like the song carried by that violin. It's a counterpoint to the darkness in our beautiful but broken world. Now, we're looking at Acts, which is part two of the Gospel of Luke. The Gospel of Luke tells the story of Jesus, of all that he began to do. And Acts is the sequel of how the Spirit of Jesus continued to show up in, in the life of the early church and to bring light where there was once darkness. 
And it changed all of these believers, as well as those who were added to their number daily. It changed them in four dimensions. And I think we see the four dimensions here in these four short, or maybe five short verses. We see, first of all, that it changed their upward dimension. Everyone, verse 43, was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. Now, the immediate cause of awe was these signs and wonders, these miracles. But the miracles pointed beyond themselves, pointed to something else. They were filled with awe because they knew that Jesus had been crucified and yet was risen in a tangible way. He was still present with them. The good news of Jesus Christ was that God was notoriously and openly active in their world. And these miracles communicated that God is living and active and at work in their midst. And that they, these apostles and church members and people coming into their homes, were awestruck to learn that there is more to life than living and dying, more than just mere survival, that we are more than an accidental and very temporary collection of organic material that happens to occupy the same space for a period of time. This awe isn't terror, but it is a fearful acknowledgement that divinity has come near. It doesn't make them frightened in a Halloween type of sense, but it makes them glad and it makes them sincere, and it leads them to care for each other. This upward dimension, being awestruck by the fact that not only does God exist, but he exists in our world and he has come near, this upward realization leads to an inward concern. Verse 44, it tells us they, they had all things in common, And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. That makes me a bit uncomfortable. Does it you? Now, if you look up, if you you open most Western white commentaries on the book of Acts, they, they spend a great deal of time deadening this passage, arguing that Luke isn't really challenging our economic system, which generally operates for us more like a creed or an article of faith rather than a sensible fiscal arrangement. And it is true that elsewhere in Acts that there are still wealthy people that then sell their possessions when needs arise. So everyone doesn't necessarily immediately liquidate all of their assets when they enter the church. And yet, we shouldn't take comfort too quickly. What this verse does mean, in the very least, is that after encountering Jesus, these people begin to see their resources differently through the lens of their belonging to this particular church and the needs that are gathered there. 
they begin to see their resources, which are currently in their possession, with other people in mind. Maybe I've shared this with you before, but in the mid-300s, the Roman Emperor Julian was trying to return the empire to its ancient Roman values. In fact, to save it from Christianity in his mind, which he called atheism. And in trying to undermine Christianity, he instructs his high priest to do a very strange thing, to imitate it, to imitate Christians and their concern for others. And he writes this, We should observe that it is the Christians' benevolence too, their care for the graves of the dead, and their pretended holiness, their benevolence to one another, their care for the graves of the dead, and their pretended holiness that have done most to increase atheism. For it is disgraceful that when no Jew ever has to beg, and the impious Galileans, that is Christians, support not only their own poor, but ours as well, all men see that our people lack aid from us. Teach those of the Hellenic faith to contribute to the public service, to public service in this way. The upward dimension that creates awe, it instills with them an inward concern for one another that that shames even the Roman Empire. And this sharing was not coerced, but it was voluntary. Something was going on in their hearts and in their relationship with God that made this sort of sharing uh, not, it not necessary to be dictated from the church. It was voluntary. And this sort of sharing only happens when the gospel begins to take deep root in one's life and in the life of the church, when there is a significant, in other words, downward dimension to one's faith. We are told that they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. But notice, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the Lord added to their number daily. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and they enjoyed the favor of all the people. Their Bible study, their discipleship, their theology made them more lovely and attractive and favorable, presumably to the outside world, which was then streaming in to these communities and wondering what is going on in there. I want to be a part. This is in great contrast to what we might expect. For today, it's often true that, that doctrinal depth comes at a great cost. It comes at the expense of friendships with people outside of the church. Theological sophistication often divides churches and makes church people a bit standoffish and a bit surly toward the world. Churches often do a good job instructing the saints, but with little outreach and service and advocacy, while churches that are better at doing these things often lack the theological conviction and depth that we learn about in passages like this. Here in Acts, doctrinal depth doesn't create a moat between 
the church, and the outside world. You see, they are deeply rooted in relationship with God, and they are service-oriented, and they are missional. In fact, they are missional because they are deeply rooted in the truth. Now, one final piece. If you watch the Super Bowl next week, you will hear talk in the pregame of impact players, players that are going to change the direction and the outcome of the game. And this church that we read about in Acts is one of those types of churches. It is an impact church. In verse 47, they were praising God and having the favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. There is this upward dimension of awe that leads to an inward concern for everyone in the church and outside of it. There is also a downward dimension of depth. There is theological understanding and sophistication, but there is also this outward commitment that the church impacts those around it. Now, what the church has historically called outreach is is really less about trying to get people to convert and more about individuals walking alongside their friends and family members and coworkers and neighbors so that those people can witness Christianity at work in a real life. It is, in other words, proposing Christ inside of a trusting friendship rather than in the imposing of Christ through words alone. This church appears to have gathered to grow deep within the apostles' teaching, but then scattered in order to serve one another as well as those outside the church. Now, I would suggest to you, practically speaking, that in a a real sense, outreach programs, church-dictated pathways of service should be somewhat superfluous. The official ministry of the church will never rival the impact of individual Christians living out the gospel, befriending and loving their neighbor and neighborhoods. Programs and projects have their place. We're involved in one right now. But they, they have their place more as visualization tools, more even as training wheels, as people connect with the church and they learn what the church is about, that the church is constantly pushing people outward in their concern, concerned first for the believers that gather there and the needs that are in the midst of the congregation, but then also the needs of the neighborhoods that we inhabit collectively. These programs and projects perhaps help people visualize gospel love and service and advocacy and encourage the church's members to engage in such in their everyday lives. But they are never a replacement for the real work of the church, which happens in your homes and in your workplaces and in your, the cul-de-sacs that you inhabit and the, the workplaces and the roads that you live on. This church didn't decide between being an open and welcoming church that served its neighbors and one that educated and cultivated spiritual depth in its members. They did both. 
And as we talk about a discipleship strategy at InTown, what would be more effective? A 10-week Bible study or 10 weeks spent making three new friends outside the church and looking for opportunities to serve and to love those people? Now, this is a false binary, to be sure. Many people don't know how to do that and need intentional encouragement, but Friends, most of us already know more about the Bible and theology than we're currently applying. And discipleship programs, men's and women's ministries, often deliver a great deal of content, and they make us feel better about our Christian duty, but they, in effect, take us regularly out of relationship with the very people that Jesus is calling us to serve. So yes to robust discipleship programs, but they have to be done with the world and the needs of our neighborhoods in view. Now we started this sermon with a song, and it was a song sung into darkness. The world, as we've come to realize, perhaps more slowly than we should have, the world really isn't interested in our moralizing. They mostly despise our creedal distinctions, and they don't believe in the institutional church. But everyone needs a song. Everyone wants to know that there is more to life than being born and earning a living and passing on our genetic material and then dying. And the word of life, Jesus himself, it is the song of the cosmos. It's the song of eternity. And most people, Christian or not, are captivated by the beauty of this song, obscured though it may be through centuries of Christian institutionalism and practice. This song begins in the brokenness of a garden, It crescendos through the various promises and prophecies and covenants of the Old Testament. And then finally, when the world is immeasurably dark, this song comes to us again as the true light shining forth from a manger in a forgotten nowhere town. Such light that brings kings from far off, shepherds hailing him as Lord, the poor, the outcast, the marginalizing, marginalized, finding their acceptance in him. Such a light that the dead would be raised, the sick healed, sinners forgiven. And that is the song that the church is to give to each other and to take into the world. And may that be so at In Town. Let's pray. Father, we pray that we would be awestruck by you, that it would change our relation, first of all, and foundationally with the God of the universe, that that would draw us not to greater and greater internalization, but that it would would draw us outward, that it would draw us to concern ourselves with the needs inside this small body of people that it would also draw us deeper, deeper into the word that you have given us in your son, Jesus, deeper into 
the great truths of Christianity and the, the creeds that we hold is so precious. And Father, that it would push us out into the needs and the concerns of the world, particularly uh, not just the abstract world, but the world that we inhabit every day. Those, uh, the friendships that we have, our neighbors, our co-workers, our family members, that we would carry the song of the gospel into those relationships and that it would create light where there was once darkness. And we pray in the matchless name of Jesus. Amen.